Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to another episode of Pobscast. Uh, my name is Anwar Osborne, and I'm here with my colleague, Dr. Matthew Wheatley. And uh, we are on staff at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, thanks. This is, I don't know which podcast this is. This is probably 15, 16. There's a lot. Somewhere in there. But uh, we got a lot of pretty neat stuff to talk about uh, to uh, today. But, uh, but first, let me ask Dr. Wheatley, who's his Super Bowl pick? I'm going to hold you accountable next month. Hold me accountable? <laughs> um, ah, it's hard because uh, I would like to say the Falcons, hometown, hometown proud. Uh, uh, I guess I'll go with the Falcons. I, I, don't, uh, I don't want to make anyone mad. <laughs> I, I, I do like your Steelers. Don't, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'd be very happy with a Steelers Falcons Super Bowl, but um, I don't know. Like it has a lot to do with who gets hurt and who doesn't. So we'll see. That is true. But uh, but you know it's football season. So the other thing that comes with football season is influenza season, and uh, you know there's not a whole lot of observation specific data on influenza in short stay units and things of that nature. When I uh, briefly perused the literature about this, there's a few things that discuss specifically the length of stay for influenza patients. And the HCUP data, which is largely insurance-based, has the length of stay for all patients that are coming into the hospital with influenza-like illness at around five days. Now, there's not a whole lot of distinction within that with how sick they are, so it's not that useful. Uh, we all know, and, it, and as uh, emergency physicians of taking care of people who have gone uh, into the hospital with the flu and done very poorly, and I think there's a lot of patients that we could probably agree upon that really just need some fluids uh, and can go home with or without Tamiflu that probably doesn't help that much in your average patient. So, uh, Dr. Wheatley, what, what kind of things are you guys doing at Grady to kind of address this problem? And do you think OBS is kind of a, a part of that? I think you can't look at all the folks that come in uh, with flu-like illness and say, well, they obviously, they, none of them can come to the OBS unit because I think you, you would get probably a lot of pushback from some of the admitting services. And I think there is a group of folks that as you said, maybe just need some fluids and are going to turn around in 24 hours. I mean, we don't know from a literature standpoint who uh, will turn around and who won't turn around. Um, so you really just have to use your clinical judgment for that. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess strategies, if you're looking at kind of addressing this at your own shop, one would be to uh, get in line with whatever surveillance uh, stuff your hospital is already involved with and maybe talk to some of your ID folks because there is an opportunity obviously to capture uh, folks from a from a diagnosis standpoint uh, at the point at which they're entering the observation unit. Some institutions uh, like Emory University Hospital are very aggressive about testing patients in the ED or in clinics when they show up and are, you know have a fever or look like they may have flu-like illness. Uh, Grady is a little more restrictive uh, and test folks at the point at which they convert to inpatient status, and that I think that is more for a more from an infection control standpoint. So uh, number one, I think, would be to make sure you're aligning your the goals of your unit with what's being done in your health system, and uh, just make sure you're not 
duplicating work or not adding work onto other folks. Um, so you need to know what kind of tests are being used. Um, and the second thing I think is to encourage the physicians working and the providers working in the emergency department to make sure that you're selecting folks without kind of other comorbid conditions. So flu plus pneumonia or flu plus bad COPD or other things that are, would make you predict that this person is going to take longer than 24 hours to turn around. Uh, I think those folks probably shouldn't go to the OBS unit, but if you have somebody who's young, otherwise healthy, who just looks really puny when they come to the emergency department, you know, their ED testing is essentially unremarkable and they're just not turned around after some fluids, then, uh, yeah, those are folks that really should be, um, probably be okay for the OBS unit. Um, so plus or minus a, you know, a viral swab or PCR or whatever you guys, whatever is done at the, your individual shops. I don't know. What right. are your thoughts? Well, I mean, uh, I think you hit uh, all the high points. Really, if you, you know, if there's something that bubbles up in the data, it's the flu patients that do the worst or usually older, but they have uh, comorbid conditions like COPD that's bad or pneumonia. Uh, if anything, the fact that you discuss it might help uh, providers figure out who the sickest patients are and not take lightly like the flu pneumonia and the flu COPD exacerbation, even if they don't go to the observation unit. And I think when we chose to educate our providers on this issue, I think that that is a benefit just by itself. Now, uh, the weird thing is, is that we work in kind of two separate systems. Uh, Emory, the department kind of covers uh, what happens at Grady in the emergency department and it covers what happens at their uh, Emory branded sites. And the approach as far as diagnosis is actually a little different uh, for both. So at uh, the Emory healthcare sites, the uh, big quaternary referral center and at Emory uh, Midtown, uh, they really want patients who do anything other than go home to get a uh, flu swab. And uh, that really was the druthers of uh, the infectious disease department, mm -hmm. whereas that practice uh, turned out to be a little bit different at Grady. So it's really hard for us to make like a sweeping generalization other than saying that you, you probably need to partner with your infectious disease or uh, uh, pathology lab personnel to totally sort it out. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, the Tamiflu, that's, that's well documented who needs that, but the other issue that came up is whether or not somebody should be on droplet droplet precautions, which is kind of the standard for what people do for influenza-like illness suspicions. And, you know, we're supposed to be doing that at uh, the healthcare sites. Both sets of our infectious disease partners recommended us doing that. That should not be a barrier for what happens in your observation unit. So most observation units probably should be able to do droplet precautions, which is like a, a uh, non- uh, N95 mask, like one of those blue surgical or white surgical ones, uh, just to stop the patients from coughing all over each other. So, but uh, that would be interesting if anybody's got extra bandwidth to do a study about that. That would be pretty interesting to find out how patients do. Yeah, go to the OBS unit. Yeah, I agree. We we just don't really know, and because you know influenza season is at least predictable each year, and that it occurs. Obviously, each season differs year to year, but to have some data on, uh, you know, these flu positive or para flu positive patients end up doing well, uh, 
in-obs and these ones don't. Um, and the second thing, as we've mentioned, is it's, it's an opportunity to uh, work with some other departments in your institution, which is always a good thing just to bring other people to the table. Uh, you know, I found that our ID folks were more than happy to share their approach and, and um, partner with us just in terms of how to, uh, how to care for these patients. As Dr. Osborne mentioned, the, the decision is very institution specific as to how they're going to test, who they're going to test. And, you know, it's based on finances and other information available. So uh, it's, it's best to know kind of what the local flavor is at, at your particular hospital. We're going to move on some to the uh, Medicare Outpatient Observation Notice Act. We kind of covered it in not the last podcast, but the podcast before that with, that we recorded at ASAP. And uh, basically just to... I don't remember much about what happened then. So, <laughs> Where was it again? It was, it was, in, it was uh, Vegas. Oh, it was Las Vegas. Okay. <laughs> See, you don't remember either. <laughs> you can't hold me accountable on what happened there. That's right. But... Uh, so it really uh, was something that came up a lot in our section meeting, and we talked about it and kind of shared some like overriding ideas. But to just give you an update and talk about uh, the local practice, maybe that can uh, offer some guidance there in the future. But So basically, this uh, Medicare Outpatient Observation Notice Act or the Moon Act says that we need to let patients know that they're in the observation unit uh, if they're going to be there for longer than 24 hours. Now, there's um, a lot of information available on the CMS website. Uh, it'll be in the text of the description of the podcast. You can go check it out yourself. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that uh, each institution is going to have to figure out is what the workflow for this sort of thing is going to be like. And uh, let me, if, if you don't mind, Dr. Weed, let me just share with you uh, what's going to happen at uh, Emory Main Campus and Emory Midtown. Uh, as far as that's concerned. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways to approach this. So what we ended up uh, coming up with was, uh, in short, is having a non-provider uh, designee. Now, uh, the, I think the fight or the, the challenge in uh, most institutions is going to be uh, making sure that this is not a provider-driven process. So uh, the designee that we have on our... Uh, workflow sheet is someone that can be either with registration or uh, flow coordination or utilization review. And that person is going to identify the patients by themselves without provider input. And they're going to look in the EMER for patients that have certain orders in the observation unit and on the floor. And that person further would uh, find those patients at 11 a.m. and present them with a version of the form, uh, the disclosure form that's available on the CMS website. And uh, that really kind of covers what we're going to do, like as far as the nuts and bolts, like some, some places we're talking about pre presenting the form initially when the patient gets to the observation unit. Again, uh, how we mentioned before, that might be onerous. And so we kind of decided on 11 o'clock being like this magic hour, we're going to try to get everybody in the OBS unit, regardless of your insurance status. Uh, to make things as streamlined as possible. Yeah, I think uh, the thing to mention here is it is for it's specifically for Medicare beneficiaries. Although most most institutions are probably going to expand it just to include folks with other private insurances. 
and it is specifically for patients who stay greater than 24 hours under observation status, but it needs to be completed prior to the 36-hour mark. So there's that uh, essentially 12-hour window uh, where, you can, where you can present this form to the patient. Uh, as Dr. Osborne mentioned, some institutions are choosing just to give it to everybody at the moment they enter OBS, and other institutions are using more of a uh, nuanced approach where they're just getting to the patients once they cross a 24-hour mark. And so using a, a time clock of 11 a.m., we're going to get all the people that are here greater than 24 hours now, and then by next 11 a.m. Uh, the following day, uh, you know, if those folks are still there, then they've already been given notice. Um, so that's essentially the who and the how, then the question is what. Uh, and so the what is a form and there is some uh, verbiage uh, in terms of how you um, basically inform them that, you know, their condition has made it, made it such that they uh, need to stay in the hospital but are not inpatient status pending some other tests or treatments to determine if they need full inpatient admission. And the patient uh, signs this. Uh, and then it's uh, either scanned into the chart or they sign it electronically, depending on your uh, electronic medical record. Um, now, I, you know, we mentioned in a, in, a, in a perfect world, this would not be done by uh, pr providers. But I think there is some of this both on the front end and the back end that is going to involve, provi involve providers. Um, so number one, obviously, you want to have that discussion with your patients as you're uh, seeing them in the emergency department or, you know, for those who just work in OBS units, when you see them in the OBS unit, you want to have that discussion um, just as part of good patient care of, you know, your, your heart failure, your chest pain are concerning for us. We want to do some extra tests. So we're going to put you in our observation unit. Um, you know, we hope to have this done in the next 15 to 18 hours, and then we'll decide if you need to be full admission. So you have that discussion with them on the front end, try to answer their questions. Um, the concern, obviously, is that patients uh, will, you know, refuse this, especially patients who are worried about potential financial implications or said, you know, they saw it on, you know, Dr. Oz or something like that, that I'm not supposed to be, I'm not supposed to be under observation, I demand to be admitted. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is more of the concern that you're going to have to have these uncomfortable conversations with patients who are essentially refusing care under observation. Um, and so, you know, there are a couple strategies for that. Obviously, one is just to prevent that on the front end by having the conversation on the front end. But on the back end, I think there is good data that came out of the OIG report. Uh, and I know it's been presented by Mike Ross at, at multiple national conferences, including ASAP and the MSEP OBS conference, where uh, a lot of the fears of out-of-pocket out of patient costs have been largely overblown. One thing to point out is that hospitals are required to give notice to patients uh, about observation status by no later than March 8th of this year. So one of our New Year's resolutions is to have uh, some information about the Moon Act as well as some sample documents up on the ASAP observation services section website. Uh, so hopefully by the time this podcast hits, we will have uh, enacted that. So if not, bug us. Uh, it, it's probably our kids' fault keeping us keeping us from getting to the work. But <laughs> just just kidding. 
Yeah. So, so the other resolution is to try to do 12 of these this year. Uh, I think it could happen. Uh, it, some some planning and, uh, you know, just being diligent about it. And uh, getting some feedback uh, from uh, folks that listen. So you can leave a comment on the uh, podcast site or review the podcast itself. Uh, but just let us know what you're thinking. Feel free to email on the ASAP OBS uh, listserv. And, uh, but right now, I think, you know, those, those are kind of two big issues. We'll cover some more uh, updates and things like that uh, in the coming months. And maybe we'll talk about some uh, articles next time. Uh, but as uh, we generally end each of these podcasts with, if you don't have OBS, then you have a problem. All right, have a good one. We'll see you next time.